Today we talk about the Democratic National Convention, we talk about false unity versus biblical unity, and how to spot a wolf in sheep's clothing. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Feels very weird saying that. This is my first ever Wednesday episode. Hey, I'm very appreciative of the patience and understanding all of you showed me for uh this the fact that this episode had to be moved back 24 hours from yesterday to today due to unexpected schedule challenges on Monday. Very grateful for that. So this week, we're going to have an episode today, obviously, right now, and then tomorrow as well. And then next week, we will go back to the regular Tuesday, Thursday schedule. This week, there, there were a few silver linings, most notably the fact that because I had this extra day, I was able to watch both both of the first nights, the first two nights of the Democratic National Convention. I don't know if it's a silver lining that I got to watch both of those, um, because I <laughs> I would actually describe the convention so far as basically a a really disastrous Zoom meeting uh, that's kind of dreadful and hard to watch. But uh, it was at least very helpful for me to be able to understand more of where this party's at, where they're going over the next few months. And by the way, those comments even are, are fairly objective in, in intention. I, I, I'm not trying to be too biased in saying that it's a dreadful Zoom meeting. It really is a dreadful Zoom meeting. I think that's something that we all could objectively agree on. There's a lot of awkward moments and dull spots, and it's just been a very interesting experience so far. The Republicans, I believe, are very lucky that the Democrats went first and that the Republicans get next week for the convention, so they get to watch and not make some of the same mistakes that the Democrats made over the first two days of this, but we shall see. So all that to say, we're going to cover the multiple facets of this Democratic National Convention. I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to understand well where this party's going over the next few months up until November 3rd, what their priorities are. They are going with Joe Biden. That much is official. So we will get into all of that. And I actually want to start with going through a few bullet point observations from the convention. So here's where we are today. Joe Biden is the guy and Kamala is the VP. That's the first observation. That much was solidified last night. It is now official. And this is what they've chosen to go with. I still don't understand it, but that was their move and their prerogative. And here we are today. So if you remember, I had an episode about eight weeks ago where I outlined four theories that I thought may take place related to Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. And one of the theories was that they would actually keep Joe Biden in the race, even though he's an incredibly weak candidate. Again, objective statement. Even the Democrats that are self-aware enough of their party's struggles recognize that Joe Biden is an incredibly weak candidate. He has virtually not emerged out of his basement in the last two months. He is not fit to be in office. But one of my theories was that they would go with him anyways, and they would put a VP in play that they would basically count on to step up to the presidency shortly into Biden's first term. So whether that's something that Biden were to resign within two months and Kamala takes over, 
or whether that's something that they wait two years, uh, invoke the 25th Amendment, Kamala takes over the presidency, runs for another two terms, whatever they were to decide to do with this scenario, the VP would essentially be running for presidency. And it looks like that's where we're at today. You're seeing some journalists start to say that quiet part out loud. You're really seeing this clearly that as we head into this election season, Kamala is being talked about more if at least the same, if not more, than Joe Biden. And she's certainly making more public appearances than he is. So we'll see what happens. But it's looking like that's the race that they're setting up for, where Biden is the he's running de facto as the the presidential nominee for the Democrats. But in reality, the VP is running for president and and Joe Biden is essentially a puppet. The second observation from the Democratic National Convention that has taken place over the last two days is that This election really, from the Democrats, is only simply and solely about removing Trump from office. It's not about Joe Biden. They know he's an incredibly weak candidate. He has been in the basement for the last two months. Again, that's just an objective reality. It's not about propping up their proposals and gaining mainstream attention for their the the in-depth nitty-gritty of their policy proposals and their agenda. It's not about that. Because if they were to outline the true reality of some of their progressive and globalist party priorities, nobody would want it. The independents in the country that have the potential to be swayed would not buy into that. So instead, they will spend the next few months berating Trump. This election will be a referendum on the bad orange man in the White House. And they will spend the next three months calling him a racist, sexist, bigot, misogynist, xenophobe, all the words in the book. They will lob insults like they have at the convention so far with little to no factual backing at all. In fact, sometimes they'll just spew absolute lies and the media will cover for them. Good example of this was Michelle Obama, the first night of the convention, gets up there and says that Trump's keeping kids and he has kept kids in cages at the border and he's inhumane and he's such an awful xenophobic president. What? Well, what she refused to tell Americans is that it was her husband that instituted the policy of caging kids at the border. Not many people know that, but that is factually true. Even the left-leaning fact-checker Snopes.com has ranked that true, that it was actually the Obama administration that started the kids in cages policy at the border. In fact, there was a photo that was released a few years ago criticizing the Trump administration. It was this photo of these kids in cages at the border, and it made the rounds, and it was huge, and national media picked it up and ran with it until they found out that that picture was actually taken during the Obama administration. So they quickly removed it, quickly pulled down the stories. Well, Michelle must have forgotten about that because she got up and shared that on the stage, well, not on the stage, on the virtual stage through her Zoom uh, platform, and just spewed outright lies. But nobody nobody cares. Nobody picks up on it. Nobody bothers to fact check. A few independent media sources the next day came out and said, hey, actually, that wasn't accurate what she said. But for the most part, people let it skate right on by. They lob terrible accusations at him. Say Bernie Sanders calls him worse than Nero. He compares uh, the situation of Trump and the coronavirus to Nero playing the fiddle while Rome is burning. I mean, it was it was it has been a wild convention so far. And Again, this is nothing new. People have been comparing Trump to Hitler since he got into office, even though, again, that has zero factual backing. Trump is the most pro-Jewish president we've had in United States history. Hands down, the recent 
peace agreement with Israel and UAE is more evidence of that in the United States standing in solidarity with Israel against Iran and gaining support against Iran, making sure that Israel's protected. I mean, the, the list goes on and on, but it doesn't matter to the people watching the Democratic Convention. It was all about spew any accusations you want, any allegations. It doesn't matter. We won't bother to actually look them through. The point is deface this man. Blame the coronavirus on him, blame the economic toil on him, blame the lockdown on him, even though, again, most of these issues are completely state control issues. They're they are issues that stem from the governor you have, not from the federal government. This coronavirus response has been much more dictated by what state you live in rather than the, the status or the response of the federal government. Doesn't matter. At the end of the day, blame it all on Trump. Try to get the American people to see their problems as a direct correlation from the Trump presidency. You even saw that in the convention with a girl whose father died from the COVID-19 virus come on the convention and actually say the my dad's only pre-existing condition was, quote, trusting and listening to Donald Trump. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. But like Hillary Clinton said, never let a good crisis go to waste. So that is their goal over the next few months. Focus on the president, deface this man, try to build the American public against him, get the media on your side, and that will be their hopeful key to victory. Um, actually, quick little statistic too on the reality of media bias. I've spoken about this a lot on the show, but a new study was just released from the Media Research Center, found that broadcasters air 150 times more negative news on Trump than Biden. So this Media Research Center analyzed ABC, CBS, and NBC evening newscasts from June 1st through July 31st. Analysts found that during those two months, the show spent 512 minutes of airtime on Trump, nine times more than the than the 58 minutes they allotted to Biden. So over that two months, newscasters on ABC, CBS, and NBC evening newscasts spent 512 minutes of airtime on Trump and only 58 minutes on Biden. And that extra airtime was almost entirely negative toward Trump. Analysts at the center found 634 of 668 evaluative statements about the president were negative compared to four of 12 for Biden. So 668 evaluative statements about the president, 634 of them were negative, meaning only 34 were neutral or positive. That is astounding. But again, it just goes to show the, the mainstream media outlets in our country. These weren't CNN and MSNBC, by the way. These were ABC, CBS, NBC. These media entities are no longer objective journalist institutions. They are political propaganda networks that have picked a candidate they have chosen who they would like to support, and they are working to focus all of their attention on any little fault of the president in order to give their dog a better chance in the hunt. Rich Noyes, research director at that media research center, told the Epic Times, it shows a news media that is tired of being an umpire. They want to be a player. They'd rather be the opposition to Donald Trump than let Joe Biden do the job. So now we have clear numerical data to accurately depict where the media's priorities are in this coming election. My third thought from the convention is simply that I'm blown away that Bill Clinton was giving any given any sort of platform to speak at this convention. I, I honestly 
I don't know what I'll say. I'm blown away. After everything that's taken place over the last few years, all the allegations against him, many of whom are very, or very many of them are very credible in nature. And multiple witnesses have placed him on Epstein's Island. Multiple witnesses and flight logs have placed him on Epstein's plane. Just yesterday, the Daily Mail reported never before seen photos that showed Bill Clinton receiving a neck massage on uh, his way on Epstein's plane to Africa from one of Epstein's 22-year-old victims, Shantae Davies. There's also a picture of him with his arm around her. We, we know that there's been allegations that when Bill Clinton was on the island, two underage girls were with him. All of these things have come into the light, and yet no media outlets have truly pressed him on it. The Democratic Party has been radio silent. I don't understand how the party of Me Too movement and Believe All Women can go from that to completely letting this man off the hook because they agree with his politics in the short manner of two years. I've been very consistent on my beliefs toward all of this throughout this whole process. My beliefs are simple. If there are allegations that have any sort of legs to them, they should be vetted out. The victim should have the opportunity to be heard. And it doesn't matter what political side the alleged perpetrator is on. People have the should have the ability to have their allegations heard and voiced. I believe that if something wrong has happened to someone, they should be able to share that. And then due process should take place in order to see if there is a need for justice served for it to be served. Unfortunately, the Democratic Party does not believe that. They only believe that all of that is necessary when the alleged perpetrator is someone who they disagree with their politics. So if it's a Bill Clinton, totally fine. And in fact, let's give him more of a platform. For Bill Clinton to have the audacity last night to, on that Zoom meeting, say things like Donald Trump is void of any integrity and he has rid the office of the presidency of any true character for him to have the audacity to say things like that when he was literally sleeping with an intern during his time in the presidency i just don't know i don't know what to say and i'm i'm saddened for the victims i'm saddened that they have not had the opportunity to be heard because again if you're a victim and the Democratic Party gets a hold of you, you are only going to be used and your story is only going to be heard if the person you are accusing is a Republican or a conservative. Otherwise, you are treated like Tara Reid, you're treated like these Epstein victims, and you're not taken seriously at all. And you have to sit back and watch while this man speaks to the nation uh, from a position of power and receives no hard questions and gets off scot-free. I think part of this too is I'm just a little, I'm a lot frustrated actually, um, but remaining hopeful because Jesus has overcome the world, praise the Lord. But I am frustrated that the Clintons have not received any scrutiny. I mean, over the last 25 years, they've been engaged in stuff like this and and nobody has pressed them hard on this. I, I, I don't understand why a media outlet will not sit down and say, okay, Bill, time to get honest. Was Monica Lewinsky it or were there others? Hillary, what about the 33,000 emails? What's going on, girl? What on earth was on this? Benghazi, tell us the truth. What happened? You're all of your state department sketchy and, and backroom sort of affairs. What on earth is going on? Bill Clinton, why were you so close to Epstein? Why is there a painting in Epstein's house that was confiscated by the government that had you in a dress, what is going on? Why are there these pictures of you with your arms around these very young girls, people that have accused Epstein and Ghislaine of grooming them? What's going on? But no media outlets 
are willing to ask those questions. I don't understand why they've fought to protect these people so hard over the years instead of really pressing them. Because really what it does is it just shows this double standard and a total disregard and contempt for actual victims because they only are caring when they can benefit them politically. So that can sound a little depressing. Again, I'm hopeful because Jesus has overcome the world. Very thankful for that. But that that was a disappointing reality, just in all transparency yesterday, to see him speak to the nation in that way and to have the audacity to criticize the Trump or the president and to promote Biden in this way when this man should have no ability to speak from any authority. Abraham Lincoln said, uh, again, when you want to reveal a man the character of a man, give him power. Well, Bill Clinton, the more he's gotten power, the more that his character has been revealed, and it's not pretty. So the fourth observation I have is just shortly how, how radical this party has become. There was a speaker at the convention named Ashley Nicole McRae who said that the future we're trying to build includes the destruction of capitalism. That's an actual quote. And this was a young activist that's speaking of the future of the Democratic Party. This is right in line with the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, massive overhauls of the government through programs like the Green New Deal. That is the future of Democratic Party. The future of the Democratic Party is not Joe Biden. It's not Nancy Pelosi. These people are just puppets for the next generation coming in and rewriting the story with a Bernie Sanders sort of agenda. Just helpful for us to note, that there, you know, Trump recently said that Biden is a Trojan horse for socialism. Uh, there, there really may be some legs to that. And the convention has shown that this Democratic Party has no interest in, in moderate politics. They have an interest in day one enacting some massive overhauls of the American economy and, and instituting major progressive reforms to virtually every area of our society. The final thing I want to talk about, and this is something that I actually want to spend the rest of the episode on in relationship to the convention, the Democrats on the first night said that their slogan is unity. They really desire to be the party of unity, the, have their goal be the unification of America, whereas the mean, angry President Trump is trying to sow division. And they actually take it further, too. They say that all Republicans now... Is the, it's the party of division. And the goal in this is simply that when we go to the ballots on November 3rd and you're voting in your local races and obviously the race for the presidency, that you would see the Democrats as the unifying party and the Republicans as the dividing party. And that a vote for the Democrats is a vote for unity and a vote for the Republicans is a vote for division. And this is obviously uh, a, a tactical election ploy and it's not new. This has been a reality in the world of politics for a long time. This push to have you associate different thoughts with different parties without actually having to look at policies. But that really is the goal. They've, they've camped out on unity. And so with that, I wanted to spend some time in today's episode, and I wanted to look at what does biblical unity look like? So if the Democrats spent the last two days talking about how they're the unifying figures, what does the Bible say about that? Are they embracing true unity? Are they embracing true biblical unity? Or is this some manufactured uh, version that is distorted in some way? I, I want to find that out. So I've, I've combed the scriptures over the last two days, and this is a topic I've, I've actually looked at far before this as well. It's something that I'm passionate about largely is, is seeking true unity that is biblical in nature versus this counterfeit version that the world seems to sell us and even creeps its way into the church sometimes. So 
few observations about biblical unity. As I scroll the scriptures, here's something I've found. Unity in and of itself should not be the goal. And even as I say that, I recognize that that can sound counter to the common Christian message that we hear weekend in and weekend out that says, seek unity at all costs. My problem with that is, unless we're making a clear distinction between unity within the body and unity with the world, that line can get dangerously blurred. So unity within the body of Christ is a beautiful thing. It's a biblical commandment, and it's something we should seek outright. We should seek completely and holistically. And it doesn't mean we all agree with everything. It doesn't mean that we uh, get rid of any little theological differences. It just means for the global of body for the global body of Christ to be about the same message, preaching the same tenets of the faith, seeking God and the advancing of his kingdom, that is what leads to the global body of Christ being powerful. And then it also heads down even to the micro level of within our local bodies of Christ to be connected and unified in the local body of Christ to be able to impact your community. A house divided cannot prosper, but one that is unified in Christ can be incredibly powerful in the advancing of his kingdom. So that's beautiful. The problem is, is that when pastors do not make that clear delineation between unity with Christ, like I mentioned, within the body of Christ and unity with the world, sometimes pastors will begin to preach messages that sound a little too much like desiring unity with the world and Unity with the world often requires you to lay down your convictions, lay down your core belief systems, or shy back from sharing them fully. So you've had a lot of pastors in their fear of sounding divisive pull back from getting really honest about the convictions that they hold. And this is directly antithetical to the example that Jesus set for us because he was always willing to speak the truth even if the truth was uh, quote-unquote offensive or quote-unquote divisive. You saw Jesus walk into a crowded synagogue and preach the word with boldness and clear out half the room. Because sometimes the truth will seem countercultural to the culture's idea of unity. And especially in this day and age, we're in a time when living out your Christ-like and biblical convictions is not culturally popular. And the world has said, in order to have unity with us, you must conform to our way of doing things. If you want to be an anti-racist, you have to back Black Lives Matter. If you want to be truly someone that is tolerant of all people, then you will embrace the the LGBTQ plus agenda. If you want to be shown that you are truly for the immigrant and the foreigner, you will advocate for open borders. All of these different pieces where the world has said, in order to unify with us, you have to become like us and you can leave your convictions at the door and therefore you can be a part of this. So you'll have churches that basically have turned into glorified TED Talks with a few songs beforehand where pastors will get up and they'll preach a very safe message in order that they don't cause any sort of quote-unquote division. They don't ostracize anybody or make them feel like the, the message they're preaching is controversial in any regard. The problem is, not only does this go antithetical to Jesus' example, but also there's a lot of scripture that speaks directly against this. James 4.4 4 says, Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? If you want to make yourself a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. So God has a clear prioritization here of you pursue the truth, seek first the kingdom, and all these other things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom, seek God and his presence, his truth and his wisdom for our lives, 
And sometimes that will lead us to have beautiful, unifying relationships with the people around us. Sometimes seeking the truth, we'll be seeking the truth in a very impressive, oppressive environment, one full of persecution, and the message of truth will seem divisive. That's okay. Still preach the truth. That's really important. I'd rather be a friend of God than a friend of the world. And you can't have both. Doesn't mean that you're not cordial with the world. It just means that where your allegiance is, that's, that's what's most important. My allegiance, first and foremost, is with God and seeking truth. And therefore, I will let no fear of man or fear of appearing culturally divisive stop me from speaking and preaching the truth in boldness. Second observation about unity is that God despises unity detached from his righteousness and plans. And you may even say right there, wait a second, God despises unity? Well, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is a great example of this. If you know this story, I'm actually just going to read it. The Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So the whole world is unified. They found this plot of land and they're settling there together. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So the world is coming together, unified, and saying, we want to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. We want to become like God and make a name for ourselves. Well, they do that, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, unified, and they all have one language, and this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So what happened here? The world sought unity apart from God. They sought unity detached from God and God's will. And in fact, they were seeking unity to a place of power that would make them equal to God, to where his power to disperse them would not affect them. They were seeking unity to an ends that was completely antithetical to God's will for their lives. So what did God do? He divided them. Why don't we hear more sermons on this? Unity detached from God's will and agenda is not actual biblical unity, and we should flee from it. Because we see this, Babel was not the only example. We see this all the way through the scriptures up until Revelation as well, the final book of the Bible, where the Antichrist establishes a, and whatever your views on eschatology are, that's not really important right now. What is important is to say that in Revelation, it's clearly depicted that this Antichrist figure will rise up and attempt to bring the entire world under one government unified. It will seem like this unifying figure that brings everyone of all these different value systems and backgrounds together under this one umbrella, but it's detached from God's actual will and purposes. And if you look close and use discernment, that's why Revelation 3 talks so much about using discernment and seeking wisdom on these matters, you'll be able to see that the fruit of this tree is not actual godly fruit, but it is in fact sour and bitter. It is not what God intends. So the world will come along all throughout history. It's done this, and it's still doing it today. These world powers, 
and leaders will say, I have an opportunity for unity. I can be the unifying figure. And if we're not using discernment, we'll say, wow, that sounds great. We'd love some unity. We'd love some world peace. We would love an opportunity to experience uh, uh, freedom from this divisive political climate we're currently in right now. But if we're not looking carefully, what we may actually be buying into is a form of unity that is completely against and anti all of the things that our faith should lead us to have convictions over. That's the second observation. Third observation is sort of a, where do we go with this information now? And I would say, as I've, again, looked through the scriptures and have analyzed our current cultural and political climate, this election, and even in the church, we should beware of those people who attempt to sell unity without Christ and his convictions. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. This phrase, this, this idiom, is, is biblical in nature. We know that there are leaders that—in fact, the most dangerous leaders are the ones that are polished with lies, not the ones that are loud and callous with the truth. That's a phrase that I really admire. I'd rather have a leader that is loud and callous with the truth than a leader that is polished and composed with lies. Meaning sometimes we have this view that the, the negative influences in our life or the, the enemy in our life will come to us and deceive us through very upfront actions. We'll assume that we'll just see evil on its face. Rarely is that the case. Most of the time, the most evil dictatorships, uh, tyrannical governments, deceptive leadership are, are that. They are deceptive. They seem polished. They seem like they're out for our good. That's why ideologies like socialism are so attractive and then always end the same way in utter destruction. Because if socialism was honest and said, hey, we're the party that's advocating to destroy all of your lives and lead to mass famine in the name of equality, nobody would sign up for it. So what they say is, we're the party of equality. And all those other countries, they didn't really do it right. We see this in the Bible as well. 2 Corinthians 11, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. If we're not looking at the fruit on the tree, if we're not actually using discernment and saying, wait a second, is this figure somebody who's actually seeking godly unity under righteousness and holiness, or is this somebody that's seeking unity for power's sake and has no desire to actually live with godly convictions? If we're not doing that, we will end up buying right into the adversary's desire for uh, deception and manipulation, just like what happened at Babel, just like what happens with the Antichrist in Revelation. 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We're seeing this in the church, where people are saying, oh, my conviction seemed sort of dis- divisive, and I don't know, that the traditional way of teaching the Bible seems really divisive and hurtful, and so I'm, I'm going to kind of ditch that, and I'm going to adopt what the culture says about unity or sexuality or marriage or gender or economics or whatever it might be, and I'm going to disregard my convictions rooted in Christ. And then what will happen is, allowing the world to shape their theology, they will believe that that's also biblical truth. So an example of this is, many kids did not grow up learning about biblical justice, so they go to college and learn about social justice, and then think that that social justice is inherently biblical justice, when the two could not be further apart. So 
Second Peter 2.1 continues this, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies? Not out in the open, secret, deceptive. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. What's the author saying? Make sure that your unity is founded upon Christ. Your beliefs, your worldview, and your relationship with others, what you unify around is Christ and his kingdom glorified, magnified, and advanced. So, this election, I'm going to repeat this again, and even in the church, beware of those people who attempt to sell unity without Christ and his convictions. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. I want to finish with this. Now that we understand biblical unity versus worldly unity, how they're different, now that we understand what it looks like to seek biblical unity, preaching the truth at all costs, even when it is not popular to the world, doesn't mean we seek to be intentionally divisive. It just means that we prioritize unity with God first and foremost, and not allow the fear of man or fear of being divisive to keep us from preaching the word and truth and being honest about our convictions. Now that we know all that, I want to come back to this topic we originally started this episode with. The Democratic Party has said that they are the party of unity going into this election. That is one of their main campaign slogans. So begs the question, is this a biblical unity or a unity that is based in uh, deceptive sloganeering and propaganda and wanting to really pull on the heartstrings and emotional strings of people rather than actually looking at true biblical substantive policy proposals. Because if it's something that's biblical and wonderful and holds fast to biblical convictions, come on. If not, then this is something that we should stray away from. That is something that the only way we'll know is by looking at policy, truly can't know by looking at personality, can't know by watching a speech, certainly can't know by just watching the convention and thinking that you know the whole story. We've got to look at on these different issues that are fundamental and vitally important. Where do each of these sides stand? What aligns more with scripture? We're going to do that over the next few months. Actually, in September, we're going to jump into starting covering each of these topics, these important election topics, environmentalism, uh, corporatism, China, uh, the economy, abortion, religious liberties, etc. And we're going to look at where do both sides stand on this. So hopefully that can help you all make informed decisions as we head into the fall election. I can tell you, As an example, I have looked at both sides and what they are offering policy-wise in this fall election, and I can tell you that the left has no room for me and my convictions, and the conservative right has a lot of room for me and my convictions, and actually, I believe, does a great job of promoting my convictions and upholding them amidst a culture that is increasingly trying to tear them down. So that will inform my vote on the ideological side of things. On the person side of things, I see a Biden-Kamala presidency being very much of a puppet leadership and where you never really know what you're going to get. It feels like there's always deeper intentions behind the veil because their policies do not align with the, the polished representation of themselves they're trying to show. They're actually far more radical than what meets the eye. Whereas with Trump, you kind of know what you're getting with Trump. He's very transparent, even in times of his own self-interest, even in times of hints of narcissism. I don't like those things particularly about him, but I can appreciate that he's at least transparent. He's not a deceptive leader. He's not manipulative. 
In fact, he can't go more than like 15 seconds without sharing all of his opinions on <laughs> on Twitter. So this this man is one that is uh, he's he's bold and he's callous at times and he has a lot of faults. I'm not looking at him to be my moral, religious or spiritual leader in the country. What I am looking for is someone who will be honest with the American people, transparent with the American people and will promote policies that support biblical concepts and biblical principles. That's what I'm looking for. So these are all the things that I have come to as I've done my own research and I've dug into these topics, and I'm looking forward to us doing that together over the course of the coming weeks and coming months. That way we can ensure we are going to the voting booths on November 3rd, informed in our decision and not showing up saying, oh, I'm just so tired of the division. I'll just vote for whoever seems more unifying. Definitely don't want to do that because you'll wake up on November 4th having really no idea who or what you just voted for. We're going to leave you against that as much as possible. With that being said, please, if you have not already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the email list on refiningpoliticsandculture.com. Donate to the show if you would feel led. That would be amazing. Be so grateful. You can also find all the information that you need to do any of those things in the links in the description of this podcast. I'm so looking forward to speaking with you in literally 24 hours from now. It's fun little Wednesday, Thursday, back-to-back episodes. We've got a really exciting topic we're going to be talking about. Looking forward to jumping into that. So tune in tomorrow. Can't wait to speak to you then. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Mm-hmm.